Hello and welcome back to the Come Follow Me Bible Challenge. Today we continue our study in 2 Corinthians, very brief time that we're spending together in 2 Corinthians, just last week and now this week, following along the curriculum schedule produced by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm a Bible pastor giving you thoughts that I have on each text, uh, selecting a text within the bigger scope, uh, just in case you want to know what a guy like me thinks about passages that you might be reading if you are a Latter-day Saint. If you're new to this, welcome. My name is Jeremy Howard. I pastor Orchard Hills Bible Church down in Payson, Utah. Would love to meet you if you were local. Uh, come by anytime. Would love to would love to talk to you. Well, what's interesting about this text that's in front of us today is we have now like hit a point for the first time in almost two years I've been doing this, going through the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, we've we've hit a point where what's on the curriculum schedule matches what I've been preaching. So today we're going to Second Corinthians eleven, which is the message I just preached here at our church this last Sunday, 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 6. So I'm just doing this all from memory on the fly because it should be pretty fresh in my brain, uh, and it's a really important passage. So let's go ahead and jump on over there to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 1. I want to read the first six verses of this chapter. Paul writes to this struggling church, a church that's always struggling, it seems, with just not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And he says to them, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin." But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles." But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way, we have made this evident to you in all things. All right, so there's a lot going on in that passage. You're not going to be able to get the fullness of the context of the relationship dynamic between Paul and the Corinthians here today in this one shot of an episode. If you want some of that, if you want to dig deeper into this passage, please head on over to orchardhillsbiblechurch.com and check out our sermons page where you can find the archives for 2 Corinthians and uh, listen to our verse-by-verse teaching of that. But basically what you have going on is the Apostle Paul here is being rejected by the Corinthians in favor of some false apostles. There are those in Corinth who have sought to usurp Paul's role in their lives, his God-given role as an apostle of Jesus Christ, to proclaim themselves to be apostles and to influence that church with heresy. That's what's going on. Really big deal. And there are, of course, lots of ways to try to address that sort of conflict in life. I mean, that's pretty high conflict, and there are a few different options for how you go about doing that. 
And none of them feel like good options, of course, in the moment. And Paul here is seeking to address that with them, this whole issue. And he's having to take up an option that he really doesn't want to take, which is to defend his apostleship to them by showing how he has been used of God in some pretty amazing ways, and they can basically compare credentials between Paul, a true apostle, and these people who are influencing them with heresy, false apostles. So that's what's going on there. Again, Paul doesn't really want to be doing this, but he is doing this because uh, he loves them and he wants them to be influenced with the truth. Well, in the middle of this passage we just read, as Paul's getting ready to launch into this full-scale defense of his own apostleship, he says something really interesting. Whoa, I hit the wrong button. I need to go right here. (laughs) He says something really interesting. He is afraid, which is an interesting term to use. He says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So admitting fear is telling here. He's he's telling us that he's not omniscient. God hasn't given him a peek into the future to see what would happen with the Corinthians. He, He doesn't know what's going to happen. But it's also telling in that this is a legitimate emotion for him to experience as an apostle. It's a legitimate response that he would have to the conflict with the Corinthians, is this fear. And his fear is that they would become an apostate church, that there would be an apostasy in Corinth. Now, um, if you are a Latter-day Saint, you've heard about the great apostasy that your organization teaches, that in the early church, maybe in the second century, there was a great falling away, and the church basically crumbled. Jesus stopped building his church, and he started again with Joseph Smith in the 19th century in America. Um, that is that is not true. That is not what happened. Um, God has had his people in all ages at all times, and there have been, of course, extended periods when technology wasn't as good, when record-keeping wasn't as good, where we weren't able to, or where we aren't able today, I should say, to go back and and see that as clearly. I mean, you think of the Dark Ages. I mean, what is left over from the Dark Ages? Well, not a lot. Out of the thousand years that it spanned, uh, there were a lot of things that happened in that millennium, and not a lot of it has been preserved to today. And some people, like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, would point to that and say, look, there was no real church. You just had the Church of the Devil, the apostate Roman Catholic Church, but um, there was there was basically no one else. Everything was went down to zero. Well, um, we actually do have some evidences of what God was doing at certain bits and pieces through the Middle Ages, and, and before that, we actually have a lot of writings of Christians from the early church, those first 500 years or so of the church's existence. And the 500 or so years after the Dark Ages, 600 years, we have quite a bit of what God's been doing in the world um, in how Jesus has been building His church. So um, there was never a great apostasy as the the Mormon church, to use a shorthand version, uh, as the Mormon church teaches. That, that just didn't happen. However, apostasy is a real thing. It, it is certainly true that there 
can and will be apostates, certain individuals who hold a testimony, a profession of Jesus Christ, and then fall away. Even churches as units can become apostate. Churches that were once good, that taught good things, that held to truth, they can, as a whole, because of bad leadership, through the course of time, become apostate and become a church that is false. All right, so they would they would be an apostate church in that sense. Once upon a time, that church was good. Now it is bad. Once upon a time, they were believing, holding to the truth. Now they're unbelieving and they propagate lies. Uh, that's apostasy. All right, so back to the text. Paul here is afraid that the Corinthian church would become apostate, that they would be led astray. And this is, like I said, a, a legitimate fear not only because it happens, and they were promised, the early church was promised this was going to happen, but it was happening in their day. Even early on, when these churches were like brand new and the apostles were still around, this was happening. In the book of Revelation, Revelation chapters 2 and 3, you have Jesus' messages to the seven churches. And five of those seven churches are rebuked by Jesus. Now, this is still during the time of the apostles. John, of course, was still alive. He was the one writing this down. Jesus here is giving direct revelation to the churches. If you have a red-letter Bible in the book of Revelation, uh, these are letters that are in red. Jesus is speaking to the churches. And five out of the seven are rebuked because they're apostate in some sense. That's a very sad percentage, isn't it? That five out of seven would be apostate. I don't know the percentage on that. Five out of seven. What? That's got to be like 63% or so. Maybe I'll look that up later. (laughs) But it's bad. It's bad. So um, it's a genuine fear that Paul had about the Corinthians, that they would suffer that same fate. And they would suffer this fate. They would become apostate in the same way that Eve became an apostate. She was deceived by the serpent. The serpent, of course, is Satan. And they would be led astray by Satan from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. This could be the um, holy single-mindedness or the righteous total devotion or commitment to the person, Jesus Christ. Notice he doesn't say to a church that you would be led astray from this organization or that you would be thrown off course from the prescriptions given to you by men about what you should do. But he's talking about their relationship to their Lord, their Savior, their God, Jesus Christ, their utter devotion to Him, their their single-minded commitment to Jesus, that they would be led astray from that by Satan himself. Satan has flaming darts that he shoots at believers, and uh, he has schemes that he imposes on churches. And so they were to have this in their minds and be aware of this so that they would combat what Satan is doing and that they would stay faithful to Jesus. Well, he gets into more detail about what that means in verse 4. He says, look, if someone comes along and preaches, so someone who 
is like imitating Paul because this is what Paul did with them. He came to them and he preached messages to them. He taught them. He actually lived with them for 18 months and became their friend and mentor and everything else. But he was a preacher. So if someone comes to you and preaches, and here, here are the tests of if someone's leading them astray by Satan. If they preach another Jesus, that's number one. If they give them a different spirit to receive, that's number two. Or they deliver to them a different gospel, which they have not accepted. Now, Paul, of course, says that's, that's what's going on, and right now you're bearing with them beautifully. You're tolerating that, and that cannot happen. He's telling them to stop tolerating that. But he's saying that those are the three tests, another Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. Uh, a technical point here real quick on grammar. You'll notice that it says another when it comes to Jesus. And then for spirit, it says different. And for gospel, it says different. Another, different, different. Well, when Paul says another Jesus, he's meaning, uh, he's using a word here, which means another of the same kind, not a totally different Jesus, but one who has been adjusted a bit, one who's been tweaked biographically a bit. So certainly they were, these false teachers were preaching the Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, at that time, there was an agreed upon Jesus was a man who lived, uh, you know, in this area, and he did these things, et cetera, et cetera. And so they weren't like making it up saying, well, actually, Jesus lived 500 years ago, and he was an alien from the planet, you know, whatever. I mean, it wasn't that. They were actually referring to Jesus of Nazareth. However, he was another Jesus, meaning they've tweaked something about who he really is. What is most likely in this case is that they suppressed the fact of his deity. They minimized the, the power of the truth that he is truly, fully God. And they maximized his humanity and made him more about the flesh than about having eternal power. They, they made him more of a, a teacher that was focused on the flesh because he was of the flesh and, and less about um, a heavenly person teaching heavenly principles. Um, and it kind of leads right into these other two things. So it's not just what Jesus are they preaching or which Jesus are they preaching or what are they teaching about Jesus, but also about the spirit that they're offering. Because he says these tests, there's another Jesus that could be preached, there's a different spirit that could be given, and these are tied together. Uh, Paul talks about in another place in his letters, you have not received a spirit of slavery, he says. You haven't received a spirit that enslaves you to law, that enslaves you to a system of works, that enslaves you to a process of earning salvation. But instead, he says, you've received the spirit of adoption. You've received the spirit of freedom, the spirit of truth, the spirit of peace, that in an instant, tied to the moment of genuine faith, you have received the fullness of salvation, and you are, from that moment, a child of God. You, re- you have received the spirit of adoption. You're no longer a slave, but a son. All right? That is uh, directly tied to what we preach about Jesus. Because if someone says, uh, yeah, I believe that Jesus, you know, he was this great man, a great teacher, and he was a, a great 
professor of the law, and he he gave us really good rules and commandments to live by. That if we do that, we will you know earn for ourselves. Though a lot of times they won't say earn for ourselves. They would say something like, "We will achieve or acquire eternal life if we follow his commandments. We will acquire eternal life." Well, that's another Jesus. Because even though Jesus talked quite a bit about the law, he brought the law to bear on many situations, even though Jesus gave us a new commandment that we love one another, even as he has loved us, he never once taught that these commandments were the means by which we acquire salvation, were the means by which we earn justification. He never taught that. In fact, many times when he used the law, it was to put people in a state of spiritual depression so that they would realize they can't do anything to earn their salvation. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. How, how are you doing on that, right? You hear that and you say, okay, well, I, I can't do that. I've already messed that up. My heart is chased after all sorts of idols. Well, the good news comes from... Believe in the one whom the Father has sent, and you will have rivers of eternal life flowing up, springing up from the well within, because Jesus saves. That's good news, and he saves by grace through faith. So someone comes along and preaches another Jesus, emphasizing something else about who Jesus is, and then issues a different spirit, say the spirit of slavery to law, Well, now we're in a a different spot, and we actually uh, lead to, as Paul says right here, a different gospel. We're, we're, We're brought into a different gospel, not another gospel, but a different gospel. I'm trying to click on this so the thing doesn't pop up. There we go. It's being frustrating today. He says, another Jesus and a different spirit is going to get you a different gospel. And this is really, really important. Because the gospel is like the most critical thing that you could understand or believe ever in your entire life. If you get the gospel wrong, your whole eternal destination depends on that. And eternity is a long time. This life is very short. Eternity is a long time. And it all hinges on what you do with Jesus, what you do with the gospel. So um, if someone comes along and says... Yeah, I know, the believe in Jesus stuff, yeah, that's important. There are people that will emphasize that. But, you know, you got to do A, B, C, X, Y, Z. Here are these things that you, sh- that you got to do, and then you will merit your ex- exalted status before the Father, or you will merit your ultimate salvation if you follow the rules, okay? Th- they would say something about people like me and say, yeah, they're, they're teaching by grace through faith, but they're simply just like not giving you the instruction manual for how you get to salvation. They're saying something that's nice, but it's actually destructive. I mean, it's just a total uh, backwards view of how the Bible presents this. The Bible presents this as getting yourself into a system of keeping commands in order to earn salvation from God. That is destructive. That enslaves people. But the gospel of free grace that... Jesus died for all, and the offer is there that would you believe in him today for eternal life? That is actually a, a freeing message. That, that's a message that can actually change you. 
You see, in the other gospel, which is a different gospel of works, of keeping commands, of obeying law, that gospel, you're trying to change yourself. And what power do you have to change yourself? You're the one with the problems. That's why you need to change. If you've got all these problems, what can you do to fix yourself? Well, the gospel of grace comes along and says, you can't fix yourself. Go to Jesus, who has paid the price for you, has achieved what you couldn't achieve by dying and rising again in your place for your sins. And then from that moment forward, God himself, the Holy Spirit, will come be in you and he will generate life from within you and he will mature you and you will bear much fruit for God. That's how you're truly changed. It starts with salvation. It leads to change. The other view, the slavery view of giving you a list of commands and rules to keep to earn salvation, that starts with change, and it says it ends with salvation, but it doesn't. It actually ends in condemnation because you can't change yourself. So which one is actually good news? Which one is actually better? Starting with full and free salvation, ending with life change, or starting with this life change that you have to somehow figure out on your, on your own by your own power, and then trying to end with some sort of exalted status. Which one is, is better news? Which one gives you more hope? Which one gives you actual assurance and confidence before God? It's the one that says, you are saved by grace through faith. And when you truly believe... God is faithful. He will stick with you. He will change you. He will work in you, bringing about fruit for His glory. It's an amazing thing. So um, as we consider then this passage, you, you have to consider your gospel, right? Which Jesus or which things about Jesus are you embracing? What kind of spirit have you received from your religious beliefs? A spirit of freedom and a spirit of peace and a spirit of adoption? As a, as a child of God? Or have you received a spirit of slavery, a spirit of judgmentalism, a spirit of pride that comes from a false gospel, a works-based gospel? And that is the last question, too, right? Which gospel have you received? The good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Or a different gospel, which is you must earn your way to God? Those are some things to consider. I hope that's given you uh, something to to think about today, to to chew on, to marinate on for a bit. If you have any questions, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to help you in any way that I could. Reach out to us, Facebook, website, whatever works. Orchard Hills Bible Church is uh, who we are, and you can find us uh, on the internet in a few places. So thanks for joining me today. May the Lord bless you as you consider these things.